singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a number of ways. You can leave a comment on YouTube, you can write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today the guest with the question with the answers, that is, is Dr. Michael Fratkin. Dr. Fratkin, welcome to Singularity One on One. Thank you so much. Uh, let me begin our conversation here by sharing that uh, today we are both kind of doing a little bit of an experiment here for a couple of reasons. First of all, the topic uh, that we are going to be discussing today will be death. And it will be discussed uh, perhaps in a somewhat different way than the usual way that my audience may have gotten used to it being discussed here, which is in a very positive, futuristic way of how eventually we're going to defeat death. But I thought it's very valuable for us to actually bring in someone like you who is down there in the trenches dealing with death face to face on a daily basis. And I thought that perhaps after such a conversation, both you and me can learn and take something valuable for our lives and what we both do today. So thank you again for being with us. Well, it's a real privilege. It's been enjoyable to uh, scratch the surface uh, of the world that you reside in and communicate in and serve with your uh, uh, podcast and such. So it's been really a, a great process for me over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I appreciate your time preparing for this interview, but let me focus on you here because that's kind of the important stuff at the moment. And let me ask you this. Can you please perhaps introduce yourself in a couple of words? Yeah, I'll start by saying I'm a father um, and a husband and a brother and a son. And I'm a couple of kinds of doctor. With one hat I wear, I'm an internal medicine doctor, which uh, means that I'm an expert in the complicated illnesses of adults. Um, but what I've been doing full-time for the last eight or so years is I'm what's called a palliative medicine doctor, palliative medicine. And what palliative medicine is or does is focus on two things. Uh, one, I am an expert in the treatment of symptoms. So whatever you feel, um, pain, breathlessness, nausea, anxiety, uh, distress of all sorts, whatever you're going through as a result of an underlying illness, I've got a pretty good bag of tricks um, that I know how to use to improve the quality of life. So symptom control. The second thing that I do is very practical. I help people and their families to navigate, to make their way through what is often a very complicated set of circumstances medically, um, but what is always a hard set of circumstances. So symptom control, navigational support with an eye towards the quality of living uh, and uh, the relief of distress, the relief of avoidable suffering, at least. Now, perhaps now is the best time to tell us a little bit about the organization that you have founded and that you're heading in that second function that you just described uh, to us, the resolution here. 
Yeah, re resolution care is uh, pulled out of my ear in the face of burnout, in the face of overwhelming uh, difficulties in meeting the needs of people in both my community and then uh, by extrapolation everywhere else. I mean, the experience that people have at the end of their lives is uh, far less than it could be. And there are so many. And the ability to create capacity to respond is limited by uh, an archaic economic system and a frustrating uh, structure of healthcare delivery. And so I've been going through it for years. Since I started doing this, I've been dealing with you know, four or five people that need my services for every one that I can reach so that so much of my time is spent in triage, trying to figure out who's the most miserable person that I can attend to. Um, while pushing the other ones down the road. And that's been a burnout course. Well, last year, I stumbled across a couple of opportunities that uh, changed things around for me a little bit. One was uh, something called Project Echo, and that's just an educational model using video conferencing to uh, enhance the skill set and the mindset of uh, people doing practice and other uh, practice settings where people with serious illness get care. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later, uh, but it's a way of multiplying the impact or uh, even perhaps of cloning what I know and its value uh, to spread it to other people by sharing expertise uh, freely. Uh, but more importantly, I stumbled across uh, Zoom video conferencing, a cloud-based video conferencing platform that at about the same time I had matured well enough to even think about putting something together um, in a business fashion, um, it had matured to provide easy, seamless, um, and uh, really modest bandwidth required video conferencing so I can reach people in their own homes uh, and reach people on their own devices. And so about the same time I'd been thinking about leaving town to find some better job with better pay, better support, better staffing, and less uh, stress. Um, but I decided I really loved it here. I live up here in far northern California in Humboldt County where the redwood trees grow. I've got a five-acre piece of that forest um, and a beautiful house, little house, but a beautiful house. Um, I was married there. My children were both born at home. Um, I've got dogs and cats buried in the yard. It's, it's home to me, and I didn't want to leave. And so as I was thinking about whether or not I would pull the trigger on this enterprise, I remember one morning I went down to wake up my daughter, who was eight at the time. And I like to be the very first thing <laughs> she sees when she opens her eyes. Uh, her name's Bella. And... I went down to see her and she opened her eyes from dead sleep and she said, goodbye, daddy. And I just said, no, I am not the goodbye, daddy. daddy. <laughs> um, this has got to change. I've got to do something differently. And it was at that point that I pulled the trigger on this project. And essentially what Resolution Care is, is a community-based independent, nimble, palliative care team taking care of people in their own homes 
in one of two ways. One is we go to their homes, we eat their cookies, and we sit on their couch, and we get to know them in the context of their own environment and natural habitat. And the other is doing what we're doing right now, which is using uh, high-quality uh, video conferencing technology to provide virtual house calls. So by using this technology, we're actually restoring the tradition of home-based care with house calls. And I'm using the technology, I'm using a team to meet the needs of people. Um, I pulled the trigger on the project last November with a crowdfunding campaign and 500 people stepped up and provided me with $150,000 to start with. I structured it as a nonprofit organization with educational and research goals and a clinical practice uh, to take care of people um, directly as their physician, as a part of an interdisciplinary team. And in January 1st, I launched it uh, in a donated office space, which we've dollied up with a little bit of studio um, <laughs> activity. Uh, started spending money, and uh, here we are in uh, September, and we have probably tripled the capacity for community-based palliative care. I've created a total of 10 jobs, uh, and we have about a million-dollar budget for both the nonprofit and the for-profit elements of our work um, in less than a year. And so that's what we are, is an interdisciplinary team with a social worker, a chaplain, nurse, physician, community health workers, as well as the back office staff doing home-based palliative care uh, using video conferencing to extend our reach. That's absolutely fascinating, and, and you have a very interesting story. And of course, just one of the, the few reasons that I wanted to bring you to my show today is, is just a little way of, of sort of showing support for the very important work that you do, uh, perhaps. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm kind of even finding myself of, at a loss for words here because... Oh, that's a good sign, Socrates. <laughs> now I'm just like thinking really like, the kind of work that people like you do and the kind of work that I do, even though I absolutely love what I do and I'm just thinking, my God, I, I've made no difference in this world, pretty much. Uh, yeah, so I find myself, yes. Um, Look, I actually, I would disagree. In the time that I have gotten to know your work and seeing the excellent kind of stimulation and catalytic effect that you've had in bringing together great minds, great thinking for dynamic conversations. That's exactly what I'm doing too. Uh, so there's part of what I'm doing is taking care of folks. Part of what I'm doing is taking care of the people that work for me. Um, but part of what I'm doing is speaking and trying to find my own voice to uh, have an influence on the world, have an influence on how people uh, think about themselves, their lives, their mortality, and all the rest. And so you and I are paddling in the same direction, Nikolai. <laughs> That's very fascinating. Because before that, you, you mentioned about our sort of different worlds. And I'm going to come back to this. But, but before that, I just want to find out a little more about, dig a little deeper in your own personal story here. Yeah. How is it that you made that choice <laughs> to deal with palliative care? Because medicine is a very broad field. You could have been working in, in the birth uh, wing of a hospital, for example, and, and bring people to life. And yet you chose deliberately or not, consciously or not. So anyway, tell us the story of how did you end up there? 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, no, I, I chose it consciously. Um, very interesting. The way I kind of tell this story is going back to being about seven years old. And, um, my grandfather, uh, Willie Fratkin is about four foot, 10 inches tall. <laughs> He's a little, uh, uh, man from, uh, Russian roots, Ukrainian roots. Um, and he lived in Brooklyn with my grandmother. And when I lived in upstate New York, they would come up once a month and they'd bring delicatessen and Entenmann's bakery stuff and all this New York stuff. And they were just a part of our life. Um, and they were always there. And then they weren't. And when I was about seven years old, he just stopped coming. They just stopped coming. And about a year later, uh, my father called us in and said, your grandfather's dead. And I have to say that I was pissed off. Um, I did not understand. Uh, and I felt angry. Um, and as is our family tradition, uh, very quickly we were down in the city, uh, surrounded by a bunch of people wearing black and a bunch of people patting me on the head. Now, now, oh, it's good. He was such a nice man, wasn't he? All these platitudes and empty uh, things, not acknowledging the fact that he was about the only grown up I can remember who ever really cared for about me as an individual. Like he, he was very interested and who I was and who I was becoming. And that was unusual. I wasn't just a kid or one of the kids. Uh, he was very interested in me personally. And, and that was loss. I had a huge loss. And all of this sort of platitudes were just, I was just, I just remember the feeling of just fuming. And I also remember walking down the aisle towards the casket and feeling angry. And as I looked up inside and looked inside, all the anger evaporated when I realized that he wasn't there. That there was his body all made up and powdered and perfectly presented. And it certainly looked like him, but I got it instantly that he wasn't there, that we are more than this physical form. And that stuck with me. Um, I couldn't have articulated it at seven or eight years old, but it stuck with me. And I became fascinated at the nature of the self in the same way I'm, I'm sure you have been on a different path. Just fascinated, drawn to better understand or at least approach the mystery of what a human being is and what a human life is for and what meaning is when I'm trying to make sense out of that. And so, yeah, my, my, my life then sort of unfolded through typical educational pathways. And uh, before I went to medical school, I was uh, a hospice volunteer um, at a time when I was looking around at young men uh, dying of HIV when I was a 19, 20-year-old. And that fascinated me. I wanted to know well, how does a 19, 20, 30-year-old young man how do they reconcile that circumstance? And so I wanted to get close to that, and I did. And I became a hospice volunteer. And for a couple of years, I dropped into a few stories and learned quite a lot about how life can be complete at the age of 21 or 30. Um, and one thing led to another. It was medical school. It was always what was most interesting. And HIV 
was sort of my access towards hospice care. And I, the, what happened was is that the, the science of HIV care accelerated such that it was no longer a hospice specialty. By the time I was complete in residency, it was a chronic disease management with a lot of quirky immunology and uh, molecular biology driving great patient outcomes for people. And to be honest, I actually lost interest because my interest is actually in the experience of human beings in the face of mortality. And so I moved away from HIV. I was an HIV expert for the first seven or eight years that I was in this community. Um, but I got, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like um, I'm a very well-trained, high-performance automobile mechanic uh, who's lost interest in onboard computers and timing and <laughs> tuning and all the mechanism at all. And, and all I really wanted to do was walk over to the driver's side door, open the door and gently invite the driver to step out of the vehicle. So I, I wonder what that says about you and, and sort of your, <laughs> your desire to perhaps alleviate suffering. Is that your motivation? I'm trying to get at the motive here. Is that why you lost interest? Is that why you switched tracks? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I think that by reversing the underlying disease state and providing people uh, better quality of life and longevity, that's relief of suffering. But it, it didn't hold me. Um, I think I'm more fascinated by specifically relieving suffering in the face of the completion of life when it's really all coming down to it. When each and every one of us are moving towards their death, it's that particular kind of suffering, that particular kind of distress, be it existential, spiritual, physical, whatever it is. Do you have an inkling why that's got such a pull on you? Because I'm trying here to, to dig into the persona and, and get real deep. And that's always, I find, very revealing. You have any inkling? I, well, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, in part, I think I'm voyeuristic, <laughs> that I'm drawn to intensity. Uh, I'm drawn to that liminal state, and I'm drawn to the boundaries between things, and the boundary between living and dying uh, draws and fascinates me at a kind of almost a visceral level. And in order to be in that space, I also feel strongly I better be bringing value to people. And so what I bring is all the experience that every other patient I've dealt with uh, has taught me about what's valuable, uh, a few tricks with medicines, um, but mostly it's about uh, the sort of wisdom that comes from uh, 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 listening carefully to what people are going through. Yeah, so you mentioned so many things here, and I, I'll, I'll just try to grab them one by one, so hopefully we can cover the full spectrum, because yeah. your answers are very rich and, and contain very uh, many kind of jumping points, if you will. So, so let me, let me uh, jump back to a point that you brought uh, a couple of sentences before that, when you said that we are, you've discovered that we are more. And the first thing that you say, I mean, you discover that your your grandfather is not there as you are walking towards the casket, and you discover that you are more, we are all more, even though you couldn't verbalize it at the time. But on your website, on the homepage, you even say that, uh, 
by saying, we are an inspired team of palliative care professionals who understand that people are more than their bodies, more than their diseases, and more than merely patients. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what do you mean by saying we, you, we are more? Yeah, this is, well, this is, it takes us beyond empirics. Uh, it takes us beyond uh, what we can actually know for sure. Um, and, it, and it does reveal a little bit about my, the fragrance of magic in the human being. Um, I have a, a tuned radar to that which is unexplained. And there are epiphenomena of the human experience that have drawn the attention of spiritualists from across the spectrum. And people from religions have generated you know, enormous amounts of dogma uh, dogma that's been used often to oppress other human beings, um, righteousness that arises from dogma. And I'm, I'm not interested in that. I'm not religious in any way. Um, but I am convinced most days that there is a certain essential, essential epiphenomenon of the human experience that can't be explained uh, simply by uh, intellect uh, or uh, yeah, or by, by by intellect and intelligence, which is a kind of a segue to AI discussions. But um, I believe that there is something more to us than the manifestations of. The bits? The bits, yeah. There's, a, there's something so, more. In other words, let, let me be even more clear and push you a little bit further and see how far you're willing to walk that line. <laughs> so in other, in other words, you're saying that it's a, it's a, there's, a bit, there's a sprinkle of mysticism at least in you there. And you're saying that science, are you saying that science can only give, you so, give us so much? in terms of explanation, but even further, you're saying that it would only be able to give us so much. Because as we know, science changes and the realm of what's known and what's not known, what's explainable and not explainable is constantly shifting. So are you saying that, because it seemed to me that you're suggesting it's kind of going to remain that way? No, I don't think I would, I would, I would make that, that additional step. Um, I think that while the future will take care of itself and that inside of the many religious uh, and, and wisdom traditions, there's substantial value um, in relationship to that which is beyond the reach of our current understanding. And I feel like that experientially, we can gain valuable information and valuable guidance um, by uh, opening ourselves to the mystical states. Um, and uh, I guess I would say I, I wouldn't presume to have much to say about the future. Um, what I have is a really practical hunger to integrate as much 
workable, valuable wisdom for the purpose of being of service to my fellow human beings and to myself. Mm -hmm. I'll come back to the to the wisdom topic here, but before that, I feel that we really have to define our terms here, right today, because that's kind of important both in historical context, but also in the context of our own conversation here. So, let's start with the topic of our conversation here, which is of course death. Yeah, you're somebody who looks death in the eye every day, probably. Yeah. How do you define it? Twice today, in fact. Um, death is the apparent, well, it's, it's the, the cessation of biologic functions such that, uh, and, uh, the biological form cannot proceed. It's the, uh, conquest of entropy over syntropy. It's the, um, cessation of an individual's, uh, conscious and biologic life, um, and I just don't think that tells the whole story. When you say that you think that, w what is left there? What is the missing part? What is that element? I mean, in, in my day-to-day -day existence, what I do is I sort of uh, move closer and closer and closer to the ineffable mystery and the impenetrable veil. I can't see what's on the other side, and I never will. It's like a black hole, as we like to speak in, in my community. The event horizon, the human event horizon. <laughs> yes. For sure. And, and yet, by, by staying as close as possible to it and as aware and conscious and receptive, I experience enormous amounts of valuable learning. Um, valuable learning that's practically beneficial to the next person that I attend to. Um, but that's also valuable and able to be integrated in my own understanding and to soothe my own existential uh, distress with the knowledge that I can't look beyond it. I'm not really filled with much in the way of beliefs or musings about what's on the other side. Um, but I, the closer I get to it, the more I get this impression or sense that there's something on the other side. So you're, are you suggesting that there is something that survives the, the sort of the, the falling apart of those bits that we've mentioned before? I have that impression or that sense, and I'm not sure I'd use the word survives, but yes, I have the impression or sense. Yeah, persists or... Remains or or returns or something like that. But it's, it's less important to me than, I mean, I just figured I've got forever to be dead. And for this moment, in this life, in this present moment, um, the best I can do is pry my eyes, heart, mind, as wide open as possible to receive all the information that's right here on this side of the veil. And then follow my passion, which is just to be, uh, to put that to work and helping and serving other people. Okay. So, so, uh, you've mentioned the, the knowledge and the wisdom part a number of times. And, and I, I, I was, my, my plan was to bring it back a little bit later, but let me jump in right now on that. So what's the sort of wisdom or, or if you will, the most crucial lesson that you have learned after having to deal with that for how many years now? 
Oh, uh, you know, probably 25 years total, but full time uh, only doing this kind of medical practice for about eight years. Mm -hmm. So it just to quantify that, would you say that you've had to see hundreds of people die at thousands? Uh, somewhere between those two. I, I, I was kind of playing around in the back of an envelope not too long ago as I was thinking about how to articulate this project. And I figure it's probably about 1,500 uh, people who in the last eight years I've served and, uh, and, then, and then, you know, do the multiplication, but probably an average of uh, three or five surviving uh, others that I had made a difference for in some way or another. So in a small town, that's actually quite a, quite a slice of the pie up here. Yeah. So, so just to go back to the that that was kind of setting up the context. But to go back to the question, what's the major wisdom or lesson or moral of of all that kind of unique experience and and sort of daily, if you will, encounters with death? It, wouldn't it be great if I could give you the the, sort of <laughs> the five the list of the five things that. I mean, a good friend of mine uh, uh, and uh, a leader in our field, Ira Bayok, wrote a, a great book, which I think captured some of it. It's the four things that matter most. And the four things that he identified and uh, I have as well are that um, people benefit a great deal from forgiveness, from forgiving themselves uh, and for forgiving others. So those are one and two. Um, that love and connection and engagement and relationship uh, are critically important. And uh, that's number three. And then gratitude. And th thank you for being there with me. Thank you for walking this walk with me. So I forgive you. Please forgive me. I love you. And thank you. These are the four things that he identified as being most, they're so simple and yet so complex and challenging for most of us. But what I've discovered is when I can support people in completing those things, whether explicitly or implicitly, um, people complete their lives complete rather than unfinished or in crisis or uh, with a great deal of anxiety. Is that why you often like to say that, that you know, uh, you, you, you often like to use the word complete instead of uh, ending? So, so I, I kind of, just now it occurred to me that you are sort of that person who helps people make that completion in a way rather than end it merely. You actually help them complete the circle, if you will. Yeah, I hope so. The truth is, though, Nikolai, is that, that most people have that capacity naturally in them. I think that we're uh, as innately programmed to die resolved as we are in many other ways in our lives, to find mates, to pick, uh, to build families, to take responsibility, uh, to do other things that social beings do. I think that we're also kind of pre-programmed 
to complete our lives and, and resolve them. And I named the organization Resolution Care with that in mind. You preempted my next question. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, there, go ahead. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's sort of, for me, the, the golden ring, right? Um, that's all I can really do on this side of the veil. Uh, I'm not interested in their uh, redemption uh, or being saved or any of the rest of it on the other side. I mean, they're alive while I'm working with them, and therefore I want to help them resolve whatever is left undone. Sometimes that looks like hiring a private detective to connect them with long-lost relatives. Sometimes it's uh, finessing or seducing them into engagements and relationship uh, communication with people that uh, they feel uh, unresolved with. Um, but I do whatever it takes to help them move through what's between them and a sense of peace and completion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes it's pretty funny <laughs> what it is for people. Yeah, uh, I hope we, we, we get to that point a little bit later, but let me ask you, what's the biggest challenge in that, in that sort of context? Ambivalence, ambivalence and anxiety. Um, those are the two things that tend to get in the way. I, I also talk about that there's kind of two kinds of people out there. There's people, I'll assume like you and I, that tend to relate to reality on its own terms. It is what it is. And we have our eyes open and we're walking through our lives making choices on the basis of what's so, right? Um, those kinds of people um, tend to make choices that serve them and the people around them. Um, and they tend to avoid avoidable suffering. Um, the other kind of people, and we've both known plenty of them, and I take care of both, it turns out, um, are people who deal with reality on the basis of what they wish it to be. Um, those people uh, really have their head in the clouds. I just have my head next to a mural of clouds. <laughs> but they really have their head in the clouds, and they tend to make choices on the basis of what they wish to be true, and those choices probably doesn't surprise you turn out sometimes quite poorly for them. I mean, the best example or the most common example are people who are uh, addicts and addicts who want to say, I can keep drinking, no problem, not having a problem here. I'm cutting down while for all the world around them, everybody can see that they're losing ground and that they're paying a price and that their life is deteriorating under the influence of whatever the substance is. That's a good example. Other people are, are more um, attached to or dedicated to the ambivalence uh, of never making uh, a choice. That's a unreality. That's a, a fantasy that you can get through life without actually making choices because those choices get made for you. That's a choice of, its, of itself. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, everybody's different and I deal with all kinds of people from, you know, uh, you know, truck drivers to engineers to executives to communications people. And um, there's a pretty good chunk of both sorts of people in all those groups. But visionaries are supposed to be those people who actually don't see the world as it is, but as it should be. And then are able to convince the rest of us to follow them in 
changing the way it is now to the way that they see it should be. Maybe, maybe I would say it differently, that visionaries are people who see the world as it could be, not as it should be. Ah, okay. That may be a very subtle but important point of judgment, yes. Not to be so judgmental, yes. All, all I really get to bring to the mix, Nikolai, is myself. And that self has been constructed on an accumulation of experiences. I've told you about a couple of them, my own burnout, my grandfather's death, and the HIV experience and everything else. I, whatever it is has formed me. Uh, and I've left out you know, an infinite number of other experiences that have formed me. So here I am. Here I am in this moment. And I, I do have a, a vision of what, what's possible, a vision of what it could be. And one of those things is that it could be extendable. You know, the, the duration of life. Tell us about that. Tell us about your vision. Tell us about your best case scenario. Tell us about if you have a dream within the field you're working at. How does that look like? How does that feel? How is that? Yeah, it looks, it looks like people taking uh, complete and total responsibility for their own experiences. It looks like uh, undermining and changing the whole way we think about healthcare. Um, and particularly if we start at death and dying and demedicalize it, there's nothing medical about it. I mean, Nikolai, there's been 107 billion of us that have walked across the planet. And uh, we've been humans maybe for 120, 140,000 years. 99.999% um, of us have completed our lives in the arms of our families and community with the context, with the understanding that people come and go. It's part of life. It's part of what we expect for ourselves. And there's no sense of entitlement inside of uh, the broad range of human history around death and dying. And those that served us were our family members or neighbors or somebody who brought whatever tools they had at hand. And maybe it was a plant or maybe it was a song or maybe it was a prayer to soothe us. Maybe it was just their personal energy that calmed and soothed us. But I'm here to tell you that in these last 70 years, this medical era, we have made the process of dying worse. We have inflicted and do inflict on a daily basis enormous amounts of suffering on human beings. We've made it worse despite all of this technology. We've made it worse for people rather than better. Is it because of the technology, though, is what I'm trying to get? Or is it because of sort of the process, the system? Is it because of sort of the taboo surrounding the subject of death in the, in the Western world? Where's the origin of that shift that happened in the last 70 years, in other words? And how, because that's going to point us hopefully in the direction of making a difference. Well, I've got, I've got a number of ideas about that. I mean, I think that, that uh, the industrialized, the, the model of industrialization and the depersonalization of the individual have something to do with it. The economics of creating uh, a healthcare system that's designed around diseases rather around, than around people is bad design. That's uh, borrowing from my uh, buddy B.J. Miller, who I recommend anybody take a look at his brand new TED Talk called What Matters uh, at the end of life. Uh, he's the uh, director of the Zen Hospice Project. It's a beautiful piece of, uh, of uh, communication. Um, but yeah, the idea that 
um, we built the system badly designed around diseases and around the infrastructure to apply technology rather than a, a real understanding of what people need. We've assumed that what people need and want is longer life solutions and cures, and we've sold that to them. And at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, people die. And they are poorly attended to inside of our healthcare system. Um, now, we have an incredible healthcare system that uh, extends life beautifully in so many circumstances, and so many people live longer on the basis of technological advancements that we've had. And I don't think we should stop looking, um, but we should notice that we've actually made the end of life, which affects absolutely everyone so far, um, we've made it much worse than it was uh, two, three, four, five thousand years ago. And that's fundamentally a problem. So when I think about the world that it could be, is that some proportion of our attention goes to the pragmatic support and care of families uh, to care for each other as we approach the end of our lives, and that I can imagine a society that begins to invite an understanding that um, by, by becoming aware that it doesn't last forever, um, by starting to poke holes in the illusion that it lasts forever. We all go through our lives feeling that way until we're confronted by something in our, either our own personal medical or family situation or by um, uh, maybe just insight. But the truth is we don't last forever. While people are working on life extension and mortality and all the rest of it, meanwhile, everyone's dying. And that's probably useful when you think about the way we use resources, when you think about the way we manage our planetary system, when we think about uh, uh, how we take care of each other. It's probably useful to realize that at the end of the day, uh, as far as we know for the time being, um, everybody's going to face this particular challenge and we can construct compassionate, thoughtful uh, context around that while we're well and then as well when we're not well. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of keep our conversation separated here a little bit into two segments. The first segment, I'm hoping to sort of give you the opportunity to sort of lay out your rich experience and the knowledge that you've learned from it. Uh, and, and that would be sort of more focused if I can do so into the sort of process surrounding uh, people dying or death. Mm -hmm. And then we would uh, possibly jump into the conversation about issues such as inevitability, the results, the ethics, uh, the, 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 the visionary point of view about whether we can do anything about it and stuff like that. So for now, I, I'd, I'd like us to, to stay, stay in, the, in the sort of the first segment because um, I think you can teach us a lot there per, per, personally rather than me already starting to disagree with some of the things on the second <laughs> segment. Okay. So uh, tell us a little bit about the, the sort of the phil your philosophy of approaching uh, someone who is dying because let me let, and let me put things into context a little bit here but today uh, of, of all the days as, as kind of 
fate or luck or coincidence would have it. Um, last week, about a week ago, I actually purchased a ticket to go visit my family in Bulgaria over the Christmas uh, holidays. And I sent a bunch of emails to a bunch of people, and one of the emails I sent was to my uncle. And he's uh, about 64, 64 years old, very kind of proactive guy. We always visit for three or four days in the capital with my wife when we go there. He's always on top of technology, at Skype, email. And I was very surprised why he didn't respond to me within over a week. Very surprised. So today, actually, I called his cell phone in the morning. And I was shocked to discover that he's actually been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about a month ago. And uh, he's losing about 15 or 20 pounds a week right now. And he is already at a stage where the doctors are not even recommending uh, chemotherapy. In other words, as he put it, he's on the way. Mm-hmm. And I was calling to give them the good news that sort of I will be seeing them over for Christmas. And now it's becoming the bad news of he will probably be dead by the time I get there. Mm -hmm. So so I'm trying to learn for myself how, from your experience. How do you approach a situation like that? A friend, a relative or someone you care about or even a stranger tells you, I have this and I'm on the way. What, how do you approach it? What's your sort of philosophy of this? Uh, assume nothing. Um, we have so many of our own feelings and thoughts uh, that come up around what that experience might be like. And the, probably the loneliest thing about a person facing a problem like your uncle. Uh, what's his name, his first name? Kamen. 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 Um, one of the loneliest things about being right where he sits is how overwhelmed you can become with the projections of people around you. Uh, that how lonely and isolated it can be uh, to have people presume they understand and to have them not understand or to at least have them have no reason to understand because they haven't really stepped into the space to ask the question so what? do you think is happening to you? How are you experiencing this particular moment in your life? You've moved through some threshold, uh, through this, from this for you, you have gone from being someone who is able to maintain the illusion that we're going to live forever, and you have become someone who can no longer support that illusion. How's that going for you? What matters the most to you? What would have you feel complete if it was resolvable? Who, how much are you suffering physically? I mean, one thing that's certainly true, and one of the things I'm, I'm quite glad I've got a bag of tricks, is that when people are physically suffering, not just in pain, um, but suffering from it, it impairs their capacity to feel like a whole and complete human being. And their ability to process, to think things through, is limited. Be, and and they are back on their heels, um, tight and closed and frightened uh, and anxious. And so without relief of that suffering to the point at least to where it's no longer suffering but pain. I mean, pain is a, a human experience that we all have. I can look around in my body right now and find it. I can look around in my psyche 
and find it. It's a natural part of being a human being. Um, but I'm not suffering from it. I'm able to be myself and be engaged with you and the audience, right? Um, but if I was hurting badly enough, I wouldn't be able to concentrate. I wouldn't be able to stay with you. I wouldn't be able to see beyond my inwardly directed distress. So don't assume anything. Find out if they're open to exploring with them what matters the most to them. And then just roll up your damn sleeves and find out how you can support them accomplishing that uh, that they want to uh, accomplish. And that sometimes is doing things, but more often it's just about being present. Um, and that's via Skype, cell phone, or by accelerating your trip to Bulgaria. If that mattered to him, uh, you know, uh, people ask me, you know, I get calls from the daughter in Des Moines and the uh, brother in Seattle, and they say, Doc, when should I come? And the answer is always the same, Nikolai. The time to come is now. You come now and they survive a few months, great. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Um, the, if you don't come now, uh, then you might very well have missed an opportunity to be of service to both your uncle or yourself. Now, there's always a lot of practical obstacles and hurdles to unfold, but that's the advice I give to people all the time. Um, <laughs> this last week, I took care of a man. I met him last Thursday, and he has widespread metastatic lung cancer. He looked like shit, um, weak, low blood pressure, and he put off the treatment that was offered to him because he had made a commitment to his grandchildren. Uh, to go to a San Francisco Giants game. And so I met him the day before he was supposed to leave, and I look at this guy, I'm like, oh, my God. I cannot believe that this guy's going to hop in a car, go six hours south, go to a baseball game, of all things, and then come back. Um, and his wife is looking at me like this, you know, because she can see it. Um, but I just said, Go. Make it happen. What can I do to help you? And I made a bunch of adjustments in his medicines. Uh, we gave him a, an extra liter of fluids. And off he went. Um, and it was not easy. Um, he got back yesterday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, was exhausted. His wife called me first thing this morning and said, gosh, she's so weak. Can you come by? And I said, well, actually, I think it's probably best to have the hospice team start to wrap around him. And she said, okay. I called and made those arrangements. She called me back 20 minutes later and said he stopped breathing. And so I went to his home where they handed me a San Francisco Giants hat and pronounced him dead um, and showed me the picture of him with his six or seven grandchildren. He had a fantastic experience. He saw a San Francisco Giants pitcher, I don't know the name, almost pitch a perfect game. One hit in the eighth inning is all that happen and it was extraordinary and what he leaves then for his family is this perfect game this perfect memory wow right and so now is when life is happening it's the choices we make now that determine everything going forward 
I mean, I'm not really much of a futurist. We'll get back to that in the later part of the segment, but I'm a presentist. Um, and so that's where most of my advice comes from. What can I do? What can we do now? And that's why I wanted to talk to you on the show, because perhaps we are, first of all, I like challenging both myself and my audience, but, but secondly, perhaps we are way too far off into the future and perhaps we can benefit uh, from being brought down to earth a little bit uh, and, and vice versa. Perhaps you are perhaps too dug down too deeply into the ground and, and that comes out in the shape of burnout. And I don't know, I'm speculating here, but you know, personal exhaustion, maybe depression, things like that. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps we can do the, the same for you in a, in a little measure by lift you up and, and show you, look, there's a world out there beyond what you have to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, 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 no, it's exactly right. And that's that's been my experience these last few weeks and looking at some of these ideas a little bit more closely. I've been very excited about science and mostly the science of scale and cosmos and uh, the paradox of this spectacularly enormous universe and this little tiny me and yet this sort of transhumanist mystical state of being. Um, I'll tell you a little story um, related to immortality, if you don't mind. I've been looking sure. forward to sharing this. Um, I was talking to my, my daughter, Bella, my, one of my greatest teachers, and we were talking about um, butterflies, uh, particularly monarch butterflies. And so monarch butterflies, I was telling her about how they migrate. Come to Canada. Yeah, they migrate to Canada, to California. They migrate. And it's, they go six months up and six months back. Um, and she said to me, but dad, it's a great question. She said, but dad, you, you, I thought you told me that butterflies only live about a month. And it took me a second <laughs> and she's right. They only live about a month and how in the world could they fly from Central America to Canada or California and back again? And the answer came to me and was confirmed by further research on Wikipedia that not a single butterfly has ever made that migration. It's six generations up and six generations back. And according to entomologists, they've been doing it for 240 million years. So monarch butterflies don't fly from Central America to California or Canada. But monarch butterfly does. And that's enough immortality for me. That's very beautifully said. I all I want to jump all over whether that should be enough for the rest of us. We'll, <laughs> it doesn't have to be for the rest of you. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it for a second here. So... So, so uh, is there a difference in dealing with the death of others and what you in your own sort of advice would give to us in dealing with our own death? In other words, because some of my audience would say, well, you know, I am 25 years old, as you said. Naturally, when we're 25, we think we're immortal. 
if you watch my show doubly so uh, and chances are by the time I'm 60 or 65 like Ray Kurzweil we'll, we'll have figured this all out so why should I even bother listening to this guy and why should I even deal with death I should focus in life right so should we have this conversation personally speaking in in with with focus on our own selves and our own death and at what point is the right time because someone will say i'm healthy i'm strong i don't need to think about death mm-hmm. yeah i think we i think we underestimate the capacity for human beings to be of uh, more than one point of view at a time i think we can be of two minds um and in, in fact i think that the the sort of vitality of you and the community that that you represent is beautiful and the excitement the energy the passion that's what living life in the present moment is is to follow what interests you and and explore it with everything you've got Um, at the same time um, there may be some grounding value in just allowing it in that statistically speaking most, if not all of them, will come to the end of their life. And I think that both things can happen at the same time. And I think that, in fact, that presence and awareness of mortality is very grounding, very solid. It's a foundation on which to then explode into passion about whatever you're interested in, whether it's high-performance automobiles or futurist uh, ideas or uh, artwork or whatever it is. But to understand that, that it's both possible that with our best efforts, we can push back against the clock, extend life in a meaningful way, while preparing ourselves that that may not be the case and that it actually may turn out that you step off the curb and take it uh, from behind from a bus this afternoon or something along those lines. I think that there's something very vitalizing about an awareness that at least it's quite possible. <laughs> at least it's quite possible that life yeah. doesn't last forever. I am a cyclist. So, yeah. uh, so. <laughs> a- every day when I go out on my bike, uh, you know, and I have cars whizzing by me sometimes, uh, I'm very keenly aware that everything could end up in a millisecond yeah that's right uh, uh and the difference between me and death is is a foot and sometimes it's it's an inch depending on how generous those drivers are uh with with sort of the the, the passing distance and so so the, the the question then or the key is are you living your life right this moment as if it doesn't live forever or are you living your life as if it will go on forever and by doing so, are you missing the opportunity to express yourself and to develop yourself for as many minutes, weeks, months, years that you live? Are you missing something by maintaining this thought or illusion uh, or dream that it will go on for a long, long time? I think that there's more value in grounding it out and understanding that, that it, it probably doesn't. Mm-hmm. What's the sort of tools, if you have any, other than sort of the painkillers and and sort of the medical supplies, the sort of the spiritual, if you will, tools uh, that you recommend to people who have to face either their own death 
or the death of people they love and care about? Well, it comes pretty easily. The, the two things that seem to matter the most and seem to destroy the passage of time in those situations come pretty naturally to me. One is love, um, authentic, real, live, non-detached engagement with people in my heart. Um, it just seems to come to me and through me pr pretty easily. And then the other is humor. Um, you know, for me, the, the best scenario at the bedside is this sort of balanced combination of laughter and tears. These two things together tell me everything's okay. They tell me everything's going to be fine in the space. If we can both laugh, tell stories, share uh, experiences, tease, play as human beings, and also be real with the sadness and the sorrow and the loss and the grief that comes with, uh, with uh, approaching death. Those two things together um, are an indication to me that we're doing just fine. And those two things come pretty easily to me. You know, that reminded me to this story. Uh, we, we have my, uh, my in-laws, uh, my wife's parents, my wife comes from a family of musicians. Um, so her father is a, an amazing uh, jazz, uh, one of the best jazz clarinetists uh, in North America, actually, double Juno winner and stuff like that. He's in many movies. Uh, anyway, uh, so th their neighbor had uh, uh, um, her mom, her name was Josie, and, and we kind of befriended each other when I started dating my wife 13 years ago. And about four or five days, uh, four or five years ago, she passed away one day, totally sort of, she went to take a nap. She was tired. She went to take a nap. She was like a healthy older lady in her probably 80s, like 85, 86, went to take a nap. And then her daughter went to wake her up and she discovered her mom was dead. But she was prepared. She wrote the will. She wrote everything how she wanted done. She had the conversation. So she was a very proactive lady. But the funny part, which you reminded me too, was that she, for some reason, this old lady, loved this song, Who Let the Dogs Out? <laughs> <laughs> and she asked in her will to play that song, Who Let the Dogs Out? Let the dogs out. And, so, and so, exactly. And so imagine this, and she wanted Bob, my father-in-law, to play the clarinet. And so imagine <laughs> this crazy situation. So we went to, to sort of uh, pay our respect with my wife and they blasted who let the dogs out and as that song is being blasted the, someone's ringing on the door and it turns out is the morticians <laughs> who are coming to pick up the body to take it to the funeral home <laughs> and the first thing they hear is this totally cranked up song of who let the dogs out <laughs> and they're like looking at us like we're aliens <laughs> right, exactly exactly i love that lady i love that lady yeah josie she was like she was amazing she was she was like this this real real amazing lady well sometimes that's the conversation that doesn't get had like so what do you want played nikolai what give me your top three for your funeral <laughs> Well, with me, it's probably going to be ACDC. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be something hard rock or heavy metal, something real 
strong and dynamic. Right on, right on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, see, these are the conversations that have you express yourself, right? So you just told me a little something about you, about the juice of you, the energy of you. That's a conversation I, I love to have with my patients and to ask them sort of, so who are you? And what do you want people to remember about you? And how do you want to express yourself at the end? I try and do it. It doesn't happen all the time. But I try and encourage folks to plan their own memorials or write their own obituaries. So that they're not, you know, Bob was born in Des Moines and he went to college and he survived by X, Y, and Z. And he had this job, this job, and this job. That's not the way I'm going to describe myself. But if I leave it to my sister and the, the template that they give them at the newspaper, that's exactly what will happen. I'm interested in writing my own and telling people, you know, this is who I, I, I am. This is who I was. This is what I want you to take from having crossed paths with me in my life. Those are opportunities for expression. I, I knew a woman, uh, her name is Kara, and her mom died when she was seven years old. And in the year before her death, her father and her mother, um, she was an only child, so they didn't have any other children. Um, but what they did was they went about the business of making a series of videotapes for her. They, they studied child development because they didn't know what an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old was like. Um, and that was a process for them all year long to make age-specific messages for their daughter, Kara. And every year on her birthday, her father is a carpenter. He made this beautiful box. And they were, you know, it's pretty big because they were VHS tapes, right? Um, and they made one for every birthday, one for her graduation from high school, one for the day of her wedding, one for the birth of her child. And every year she would go into the room, and when she was young, they'd put him in the machine and they'd step out. And there she was, she and her mother engaged like this, and her mother telling her the things that she wanted her to know about her and what she wanted her to know about her life. And as time went by, Kara would invite her family in and let them see, and then her friends. She showed me one of the tapes. It was stunning how present her mother was for her. And at the end of the day, when she's, you know, I met her when she was a 26-year-old lady, woman with a kid and she has a closer and more intimate relationship with her mother than so many of us have with our own because of that level of intention and presence that her mother put into that project um again that's that's enough immortality for me let me ask you this about the tools perhaps do you recommend for example you you kind of did already but more kind of explicit and and focused meditation on on let's say for example one's own death mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because and 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 do you recommend people read books such as perhaps the tibetan book of the dead or the japanese book of the samurai hagakure the book of the falling leaf uh or or any of the other many great alternatives I th there's so i mean there are a huge number of alternatives I mean, if, there's one book, if there's one book that i will that i would share with you as being the most exquisite for me and my tastes is no fear no death by Thich Nhat Hanh. Um and the reason is is he's such a gentle poet of a man that his language is so simple it's so straightforward his metaphors are so 
accessible and it's not uh, filled with a pantheon of doctrine, um, like in a lot of books like that. But the truth is, it's just a matter of like pausing for a moment on the beach or on a walk. Um, I mean, I have a whole bookshelf full of meditation books. And to be honest, I probably spent, you know, a hundred times more time reading about meditation than actually doing it. Um, but my meditation as my children is to show up and be present and play with them. Um, my meditation are the people that I serve. Uh, my meditation is the people that I work with. Um, and the way that I approach everything is to try and continuously pry open my intention and awareness to be with what's actually happening right now. And through that meditation, I seem to be making progress, growing up, uh, getting, accumulating or integrating a certain amount of wisdom that is out there. Okay, so so perhaps uh, I can sort of jump in here as a way of a segue into the second segment of our discussion today uh, by sort of sharing some, some of my own take on some of the things that you've mentioned. Uh, and 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 as you said, even reveal some more of myself. So because me actually and my wife uh, have been having this conversation for the last few years, and we're pretty much very clear about what each of us wants, uh, given the different contingencies. So for us, uh, so for me, first of all, as a transhumanist, the the the, the sort of the the potentiality that the, the futures tree stands like this. So first of all. I do hope that humanity in general will end up defeating death. And I'm actually pretty sure that uh, at least death from an old age would be defeated for sure. What I'm not sure about is uh, uh, the timeline of that kind of process. And to be honest, uh, and people are kind of often surprised when I share this, but I am not particularly too obsessed about my own mortality and my own death. Uh, to me, the reason why I'm interested in this, in, in it, is, is from a philosophical standpoint of view, it would change the game for humanity. And so uh, I would certainly would love to be there and uh, sort of uh, get the benefits of such a development personally, but I'm not betting on it myself. Uh, and, and the reality is no one really cares that much about me. Uh, except a few people who are close by me, and 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 I, I I don't think that necessarily that will be a terrible thing for the world, uh, per se. Uh, so I, I am more in I I care, Socrates. Well, that's very good. That's very good. But but I, I care about that topic more about the philosophical fundamental point of view of of humanity as a whole and how it would totally change the game of of uh, of what it means to be human. Uh, uh, because as, as Nietzsche said, you know, all art and science come from men trying to come to terms with our own mortality. And so the game would be changed fundamentally so. Uh, and so what, what, as I said, we're hoping that will be the case, but our plan B and C are as follows. So as plan B, both me and my wife are going to sign up for cryopreservation with the Alcor Foundation in Scottsdale, uh, Arizona. And we're planning to have a trip uh, in February to do just that. Not to, not to get frozen. To get, well, to not get, to get frozen. Sign up. 
to sign up yet to get frozen after we are legally dead. Noted. Uh, provided. I, I recommend that you wait until that point. Yes. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Provided, though, that the, the brain is intact. So if my brain, say I'm on a bicycle today after our interview, I'm going to go for a ride, a car or a truck runs me over and my brain is smashed all over the surface. Well, in that case, I've told my wife, I don't want a, you know, a, a gravesite. Just cremate me and throw my ashes somewhere in a beautiful mountain. That's all I care about. And that would be plenty of me. You don't need to mark the spot. You don't need to put it in a grave or anywhere special. Just that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's kind of like plan C as we, as we spoke. And so let's actually start sort of unraveling, if you will, both yours and mine sort of uh, presumptions, uh, biases, and starting points. Because, as you said, there will be some seriously strong similarities. So, for me, one of the ways that I was exposed to death in my life was uh, actually, and cancer, by the way, I was maybe about seven or eight when my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and she had a, a small lymph node sort of inflammation here on her neck. Mm -hmm. And the, they did a small incision to remove it. Then they had to do a bigger one and a bigger one and a bigger one and a bigger one. She did four or five operations. And then she had to go through radiation therapy, chemotherapy, you name it. She did the whole nine yards. And that process took about six or seven years. And my mom was actually younger than I am right now. She was uh, about 38 and a half when she passed away. Uh, and I am over 38 and a half now. I'm so, or about, about that. So about my age. And I was at the time about 13, 13 and a half when that happened. And I kind of watched the, the whole process Yeah. Uh, in front of my eyes from seven or eight years old to about 13 or 14. So my bias from that own personal experience has been throughout the years that death could never be a good thing. It could not be a pleasant thing either based on that very kind of personal, individual and limited subjective experience that I had with it. It's a freaking terrible tragedy. It, this, my father started drinking after my mom died uh, and, and he's never touched me once in his life. But then basically one day he got so drunk, he, he beat me real bad. And I basically was, mm. I don't think I was 14 years old when I told him I've had it, I'm done with this. And I walked out from, from his house and I never went back. Yeah. Right. So, and that kind of all kind of triggered with death. Yeah. And so I'm very strongly biased against having anything positive associated with death. I acknowledge that. Yeah. Then throw that in with sort of the field that I'm in. And, and you have the visionaries like Ray Kurzweil, like Aubrey de Grey, like Bill Andrews and uh, Liz Parrish, many others, a growing number of scientists who are either making real progress or seeing the possibilities of real progress, of defeating aging and, uh, and, and at least defeating death when it comes to old age associated diseases such as Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, you know, arteriosclerosis, uh, you name it, dementia, whatever. Uh, and so 
this is kind of like my foundation of biases on the table. Here. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just wanted to make it very clear and, and specific. So let's now talk about some of the ethics surrounding uh, death, because my show is really not about technology, but it's about ethics. Technology is the context, and I believe that as the context changes, our ethics inevitably has to follow. And perhaps if I'm doing my job well, maybe we can even move that process along. I don't think we can even preempt so that the ethics goes ahead of the technological development, but at least it, we can help it so it doesn't lag too much. And so let's talk about sort of the some of the major points that usually are spoken in my, my community. So, for example, death as a term is meaningless. It has changed over 30 times since the first time it was introduced in the Encyclopedia Britannica in like 1638. And in another words, is basically a doctor usually saying, there's nothing else I can do about you at this point in time. And the funny part is, I just watched, uh, as part of my preparation for this interview, I rewatched actually uh, a documentary uh, by this Canadian Broadcasting Corporation called Dead Enough, where they were going about the policy within the same province in, of Canada. It's the same, like in the same state in the United States, how different hospitals have entirely almost different policy and approach on when to pro pronounce people legally dead and how it even goes as far as differences of who is on shift at the time and how substantial that can be and, and the implications for, let's say, organ, organ donors uh, or, or, or in some cases, they, they actually gave two cases of people who actually came back after, after doctors were saying they're gone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so that's frowned so, upon in the medical world. But, but they documented those cases very well, actually, and, and and so that's one of the things that that in our community we usually kind of uh, focus on to begin with, and that's why I asked you in the beginning, how do you define death? And the definition that you gave me was kind of a very personal definition. It was your definition. It was not like I just I made it up at the time. <laughs> right. Right. It was kind of not the medical definition. So that, together with the fact that our capability as doctors, as scientists, as people who are doing that practice of alleviating suffering and he helping people who need it, as our capabilities and our tools change and improve, we are able to do more. So, for example, you used to be considered to be dead when you don't have pulse. We know that's not the case anymore. We routinely turn people's hearts off. Uh, the same was when you lose br breathing capability. Now we can turn that off and on. Uh, so you have, you know, all of these have implications on the definition of death, right? Is it cardiac death? Is it brain death? Is it like breathing as in like age old time they would put the mirror? Can you fog the mirror? You're dead, right? So tell me a little bit about your take on all those things and how do you think will it will change both the the future that you can or cannot see at the moment and the daily dealings of death you have today all of those things huh hmm. okay nikolai uh, <laughs> the first thing that i want to say is just respect 
for your experience as a human being and walking through the experience of your family and the loss of your mother and your father's reaction to that and all of that stuff makes it makes perfectly good sense to me um, how committed you would be to reconciling that unresolved material. It's the same thing for me. I looked at my grandfather and I, there was a moment of awareness, of insight, a sort of a noetic knowing that there's more to us than this physical body. And so I, I walked in my direction from that experience in my youth, that painful and difficult experience in my youth. Um, so I'll start where you left off with that story to tell you that my experience actually of what's possible as people approach the end of their life um, is not at all what you experienced by necessity. And in fact, with proper support around people, um, applying some of those principles I've shared with you, um, simple symptom control, acknowledgement of the things that matter the most, structuring a treatment plan around uh, those things that they identify as most important. My experience of that last chapter of life for people is one of greater well-being. That's different than what you, you watch the deterioration of a family and the inflicting of suffering on your mother by the very treatments that were extending the duration of her survival, you were watching the impact of that on the quality of her living, right? And your family fell apart. I saw her lose her hair, some of her teeth. She was, in the end, she lost so much body weight, she was like a skeleton. And so I see that physical manifestation more often, though, accompanied um, by that sense of wholeness that I'm talking about. Now, that's not all the time. I mean, sometimes it is a wild and terrifying ride. Um, but I, I, I would be, I think it's safe to say that three quarters of the time I watch people heal and become more whole, more well in the last part of their life. And that's just not the view you had. Um, but it is the view I have. Um, that's not easy. Uh, it's hard work, hard work on our part as a team, but more importantly, it's it's hard work on the part of the family and the person at the center of that story. And I believe that's a very valuable work you're providing. I'm just sort of asking if there will be a moment that we get too attached to that work and the results that we see for sure, positive results in, in those cases now, that can make us in a way too attached to it to see the future in which maybe we don't have to deal with that kind of work and that kind of approach. Totally appreciate that too. And I appreciate efforts being made to cure cancer. I appreciate efforts being made to better understand the fundamental uh, genetic underpinnings of aging. Um, I'm very interested in those things just as an observer of science, not as a practitioner. Uh, of science or a practitioner of uh, immortality or anti-aging science, but as as one who's very fascinated by the the sort of the the, the uh, moving wave of human understanding, human knowledge, right? Um, so I'm I'm excited about that. I'm excited about uh, you know the development of more and more complex 
computing systems and um, excited and interested about uh, the mind-body problem. And I'm excited about the intelligence consciousness problem. Um, those places between uh, just brute force computing power and then this moment of singularity. It interests me, fascinates me, in fact. Um, and, I, and, and, and I'm a supporter of ongoing development, but I'll, t- I'll tell you about a letter I wrote. Uh, it was to the Oregonian, the Portland newspaper. I wrote it to uh, an open letter to Phil Knight. Phil Knight is the uh, founder and CEO and uh, creator of Nike. Uh, and he gave $100 million to Oregon Health Sciences University uh, to support efforts to cure cancer. And I just think that's fantastic, you know, and that inspires this huge infrastructure development um, and this huge effort uh, to raise it up, take the bar up at OHSU for uh, developing better understanding of cancer and its treatments. Um, And my open letter said, would you please consider um, spending uh, one half of 1% of that much for research on systems of delivery uh, to palliative care, given that at the moment, meanwhile, while we're searching for the cure, while we're searching for uh, the big score, the uh, big breakthrough, would you mind dedicating some small portion of those efforts uh, to better understanding how to care for people who are dying. Now, cancer patients, it turns out about three-quarters of them die. 35 years ago, about three-quarters of them died. Now, that's there are some cancers that have fallen by the wayside and have yielded to cures in that, that period of time, while the incidence of cancer has risen. And it turns out that most people who died then die now. Now, they die later. Uh, they live longer, and arguably they live better, but they die. And cancer patients that go through cancer treatment deserve our best efforts intellectually, scientifically, technologically, and just fundamentally operationally to support them in their death. And what happens now, um, cancer, uh, cancer represented about 90% of hospice enrollment back in 1983 when it was formed. Um, And it was formed around this idea that people would be in hospice care for six months of their life. But now cancer patients represent less than 30% of the people that go to hospice. And the average duration or length of stay, which they're getting this support through social work, nursing, and home-based care, the average length of stay in hospice is about uh, 10 or 14 days. That's a, a... very short period of time to try and facilitate this process of healing that I know is possible. Now, in palliative care, we're sort of structured around the idea that maybe we can be caring for people for the last couple of years of their lives outside of the very high acuity hospice at the very end of the road. Um, But it turns out that the average period of time that I speak, that I care for people, is probably in the one to two month range, which is also not a very long period of time. My guy that I told you about uh, who I pronounced this morning, at least I think he was dead. Um, um, I had him for all of about eight days under my care. Um, And he didn't live long enough to be under hospice. That's more the common 
thread. So while we're working on curing cancer, curing aging, uh, pushing it back, I'm interested in forming uh, a transhumanist for palliative care uh, contingency. Um, I want to engage this audience in caring about the people who, meanwhile, are in need, right next door, in your houses, in your families. I'm interested in engaging uh, the kind of energy of the community of folks that are listening to us um, to really care about what's happening now while we're working hard towards making a future um, that is different. Mm -hmm. Well, let me see. That, that sounds very noble to me, and, and, I, and I support you 100%. By the way, Phil Knight never responded to my open letter, um, and uh, no monies were dedicated from that Developing Cancer Institute towards uh, palliative care, symptom control, service delivery for people who are actually dying of cancer, just for the record. He's, I'm still open to hearing from him if he wants to give me a call. <laughs> Well, um, so let me see if I can engage you to move one step further. Yeah. And see how challenging that will be for you. So we have the patient, let's say the patient uh, you saw this morning. You're pronouncing him legally dead. <laughs> you, according to your own admission, are basically in a position, as I said, to say there's nothing more I can do about you at this time. Why do you think, or do you not think, we should take Plan B then after that moment and put them in cryopreservation, for example? I've, I've actually, uh, well, I, have I? There was, there was a person that I cared for who was interested a year or two ago, and they didn't do the, they didn't complete the process to make those arrangements, but I was prepared to play my part, to facilitate that process if that was what floated their boat. Um, but they, didn't, they didn't complete their part of it. I'm not against or for really much of anything I'm, uh, other than being for people determining their own outcome. I'm, I'm interested to hear how that goes for you in Scottsdale and what that experience is like and what you learn about it. I'm kind of interested in that. Well, I have a whole video tour on the topic, so oh, cool. you can you can go and watch it. The BBC even reposted it because it's cheaper for them to use my video <laughs> than send the person there to do it. Yeah. But um, so we've been there. I know the people. Uh, I've done tours of the cryo facility in Alcor and also of the Al of the uh, Cryonics Institute in in Michigan, which is uh, where the son of Robert Ettinger, who is the pioneer of of cryonics. Um, and, and, and where he's also being preserved in long-term storage. So I wanted to ask you, what's your take on cryonics? Is that something that you would consider and or recommend? Because we have had already, let's say, uh, we know that we, we, we can cryopreserve a number of, uh, we, we know we can do that to embryos. We've already done it with... Uh, with even some advanced uh, sort of embryos, and, and we have defrosted them years after they have been uh, produced. Um, and the idea is that what we can do now at a smaller scale, which is the way science works, we start with the small scale, and then we move at a larger scale. It takes time, money, and effort, but eventually it happens usually.
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why not use that as a plan B for all those people? Because as our science and our toolbox grows bigger, we might be able to fix things up and people up that we have not been able to do so today. Yeah, no, I, I, why not? Why not for those that uh, wish to dedicate their resources to that undertaking? Why not for people like yourself and your wife that uh, make an informed choice about it? Why not? I have no objection to it in, in any way. I have no particular personal interest in it, and it may have... Why not? I think it may have to do with that, that little thread or fragrance of mysticism that you picked up earlier on, is that uh, I don't find myself in distress um, beyond that veil. I don't have a clear idea that what's waiting for me is a pure non-existent state. I also worry a little bit about the world in which I might be awoken into. Um, How about this? You would experience that other world you're talking about, whether you're cryopreserved or cremated or buried, that all, at, all the same. That may be true. The only difference will be, however, which is a big difference, that in the case of cryonics, you would actually have even some small chance, better than zero chance to come back. And the alternative would give you zero chance to come back. So in fact, if you do cryonics, you can experience that mysticism. Cory Doctorow in his um, book, uh, Up and Down in the Magic Kingdom, calls it uh, deadheading, where, period, where people choose for a period of time to go, as they call deadheading, in deep cryo sleep for decades, sometimes centuries, and then they wake up and they find themselves recharged for a new life. And so you can get to experience death and then you can get to experience life again. Yeah, I, I, I can see the appeal, but it, it somehow doesn't quite land in my belly. I mean, I have to, the truth is, is that I'm not the world's most rational decision maker. I, you know, there's, and I talk, talked about two different kinds of people. There's people who are reality-based, and then there's people that live in a sort of wishful fantasy. You put yourself in the reality. I do, I do. And, and, but I also think that there's two kinds of people within that reality-based world. <laughs> those who divide people in two kinds of people exactly. and those who don't. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> the cutters. No, I, but, but I think that, that there's, there's people who make rational choices on the basis of rational thinking. They're left-brain dominant people who think it through, uh, measure the advantages, disadvantages, and make a choice based on their predominance of evidence. And then there are other people who really look reality square in the face and make those decisions on the basis of an intuitive hit of what's going on. And intuitively, um, the idea of perpetuating my uh, somatic survival um, just doesn't, doesn't land for me. I'm, I'm comfortable with, uh, with the nature of things as it is. Not that it's better than one that's more interested in uh, that kind of a technological adventure, um, but I find myself kind of not interested in that. I'm, I'm more interested in creating a legacy like we're doing right now, right? My children will get to watch this um, and their children, their children, and these, the digital survival of my thoughts, my feelings, my passion, my honesty, my transparency, 
my expression as an individual human being uh, will extend beyond. And again, that's, that's enough life extension, immortality for me and the idea that maybe you'll uh, go forward. Um, that intrigues me too. I'm kind of excited about being a part of humanity with you and that there'll be potential game change as it relates to survival. You see, I'm not betting on the fact that I will go forward, but I'm just not precluding that possibility entirely by creating myself into a zero possibility state. Yeah. Right. To me, cryonics will give you some small chance, but it's definitely much better than zero. So however unlikely it may be, it's still more likely than the alternative. So uh, that's that's personally my take on it. And, and I mean, there's already an enormous uh, amount of research done into suspended animation, which recently actually got FDA approval. And now they're doing all kinds of experimentation. I can refer you to a couple of articles with the blessing of the FDA, where they don't cryopreserve people, but they put them in suspended animation, which is uh, around, I think, between 10 to 15 degrees Celsius. And they had a, a number of conditions and cases in which where people would have a 2% chance of survival, and now they have 90% chance of survival because of the implementation of, of such, uh, such, a, such a step, and which is one of the reasons why it got so quickly approved for human trials, only after maybe 8 or 10 months or a year after they did trials with, with pigs. Well, after, after our engagement, you'll be sure that I'll be more attuned to progress and developments in that technological world. But I have to say, Nicole, I, I, I find myself entirely, um, entirely sufficient in the present moment of my life. And my, my planning extends to uh, you know, my family, this project, the idea that I can create and manifest uh, impact in society by sharing ideas and information. Um, and for me, I, I feel so sufficient with that that I just don't find myself reaching beyond the, the typical visceral survival. It's just, it's just me. Ah. I would like to invite you to dig deeper into sort of the motivation or the impetus behind that urge, though, mm. and and see where it's coming from. And and I th I would venture to suggest it may be revealing to and may be useful to in terms of self knowledge. But by the way, I'm sure you're right, actually, and and look forward to our conversation a year or two from now, or six months from now, even to see where it uh, evolves. Yeah, and, and, and speaking of such a conversation, by the way, I had about five pages of, of talking points today, and I'm only on page two so far. <laughs> so there definitely will be a, a follow-up conversation at some point. That'll be great. Uh, but uh, let, me, let me ask you this. What... Let me think which, which jumping point. What is it that... What, for example, let me give you one reason why you might want to reconsider your chance. The, the longer you live, the, the bigger impact can you do and have on other people, positively speaking, right? So imagine the, the job and the stuff, the mission that you are on, the, the, the work that you do is so vitally important. It touches the lives of so many people. Wouldn't it be nice if you're able to do that longer than expected. 
Yeah, no. It, Isn't that good reason enough that you can make the difference for so many other people? In other words, you can still do it for the same reasons that you're doing it now, not for yourself, for other people. It's like, you know, really nice people who are rich, they're rich not for themselves, they're rich for other people. They want to help other people. They want to be in a position where they want to help. Same with longer life. If you are in that position, you can you know, volunteer your time, you can make a difference for other people. If you're not around, you can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's, you know, this dilemma of, you know, is bigger, better, longer, better. Um, we can talk to our wives a little bit about that. <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, it's, uh, the duration of my survival is less important to me than how richly and completely I'm living in this particular moment. I'm prepared to, I get that, yeah. I'm prepared to be dead 20 minutes from now, and in that last breath, my hope is that I feel like complete, like I've lived every single moment to the best of it, and, and I'm, I'm happy with that contribution to the world, and, and the idea that if I lived longer, um, perhaps I'd go crazy and uh, undermine the efforts that I've, <laughs> I've worked so hard to uh, offer to date, I don't know. It's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, it's a very Zen Buddhist way, by the way. You said you're not religious in any way, but your approach to like, if I'm dead in 20 minutes from now, it's it's a very Zen Buddhist way of looking at it. People have said you know, that. Samurai way, if you will. Like, do everything as if it's the last thing you ever do and live every day as if it's your last day. And this, there's a certain there's a certain something about the present moment that if you really are present in it, it has reach and span and it, it expands that is a very zen kind of concept but it's true the more and i agree and by the way that's the most appealing i'm i'm also 100 percent atheist as you can tell but zen buddhism in particular is the one sort of i wouldn't even call it religion i would call it philosophy of living yeah. that yeah. appeals to me tremendously and actually is very close to epicure epicurean um, sort of uh, ethics uh, in in many way in in some ways at least um so let me ask you this there will there already is uh, you you guys are in the middle of elections there uh, and there is a are you aware that there is a <laughs> There is a presidential candidate for the first time ever in the United States who is running on the uh, sort of transhumanist uh, Zoltan Zoltan Istvan, a friend of mine, uh, not far away from you actually, um, and he is riding right now what he calls the immortality bus uh, during his campaign. <laughs> uh, I would actually probably be interviewing him in the next uh, couple of months. Uh, so are you aware of that and, and how's that sort of, does it have any impact on what you do? Because in a way you're dealing with death on a daily basis and now for the first time ever you have some presidential candidate who openly talks about defeating death and perhaps reaching immortality, at least from old, uh, uh, old age, uh, and accomplishing so in the scientific method rather than through some kind of religion or rupture sort of experience. Yeah, yeah. No, I would. I actually just I read very little. There was one uh, blog post on your site uh, about the wager, about the transhumanist wager that you wrote about. It just gave me a, just a whiff 
uh, and I thought thought he was really interesting. I thought his the genesis from uh, almost stepping on a landmine while working on a story in Southeast Asia, I believe. Uh, yep, that's that in Kashmir in Kashmir in Afghanistan. Um, that to me is is uh, really intriguing. I'd love to have a conversation with uh, Zoltan um, if he was interested. Not to debate. I'm not much of a debater. I'm much more of a uh, looking for the synergies and overlaps. And uh, I don't like debates myself. I prefer conversations because in debates people never learn almost, and it's all it becomes all about the clash of egos. That's right. Uh, debates are about winning. It's about I win, you lose. It's a zero-sum game, end of story. And it's about looking good. Whereas, a, a, which is why I love uh, Socrates and Socratic philosophy, because it's a conversation, meaning it's a lot more open-ended. Anything can happen, and hopefully all sides leave better off than they came. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, one of the things that you know comes to me from the work that I do is there's really not that much room for righteousness about much of anything. Um, that I, I can't really, if I walk into a room thinking I know what needs to happen or I know what this person needs, then I've already defeated my ability to, to allow them to settle into a better understanding of how to guide me. And so I, I really do enjoy talking to people who I think I might disagree with about some things, but also I'm sure I'm going to agree with them about a lot. So I'd be, I, would, I think it would be really fascinating to talk to, to Zoltan and see what happens. Yeah, and he's not far away from you, so keep an eye on him. Okay. Also, watch out for the interview with, with him. Try not to get run over by the immortality bus. <laughs> they were having oil trouble the other day, so the bus was stuck. Uh, anyway, that was another funny story. But the immortality bus was stuck in the middle of nowhere with an oil leak. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, Michael... I feel that we haven't even scratched the surface of our conversation uh, as of yet. Yeah. But unfortunately, two hours flew by so quickly. Super fast, yeah. I've enjoyed our conversation tremendously, but unfortunately for this day, for now, we're going to have to bring it to an end. So let me ask you the two things that I always ask at the end of my interviews. Number one is, where can people find more about you and your work? Oh, yeah. I'd love uh, everyone and anyone to uh, send us a message and to sign up for our newsletter, resolutioncare.com. Um, and it has a lot of information about a little bit of the background and philosophy, but some of the pragmatics about what we're up to um, and quite a lot of the media uh, coverage. Uh, we've been very fortunate to have uh, gotten the interest of uh, media channels. So uh, Resolution Care. Dot com is the place to engage. Yeah. You, you recently had some coverage on the PBS, which helped me actually in, in the preparation of this video, of course. And I love your website. It carries your kind of style and your writing. I love that. It's very kind of human. Yeah. What I don't like about it, I have to say, though, is that annoying pop-up. Because I had to go many times to read many different pages, and every time I go, that pop-up keeps popping up right in my face. invites you to uh, sign yes. up for the newsletter. I wonder if there's a way to get that for those that have signed up. 
There is. There is. There is. All right. Please I'll... get it done. Okay, I'll get it done. If you, if you are a familiar IP and stuff like that, don't keep stacking it in people's face. Okay. That's my own two cents on your website. Get rid of the pop-up and sign yeah. But going back to, to a serious kind of close-up to our conversation, perhaps, what do you think? I mean, we are kind of leaving open-ended. I feel I want it more and I do want more and I'll do a follow-up with you. But how can we wrap up this, this kind of meandering conversation we had today with you in a way that perhaps people can take away a message from you and sort of carry it over in their life and unfortunately some of them would carry it over in dealing with death i think i'd sum it up with the word uh that i i actually told bj uh again bj miller's ted talk just released this week called uh what matters most at the end of life um he he kind of gives a little nod out uh to the folks in the audience that are working on issues of immortality and uh, life extension um, in a kind of a uh, joke uh, and basically says, I know that some of you all are out there working on that. Um, and then he says, but meanwhile, meanwhile, I'd like to invite any and all of you to attend to the needs of the people around you. Meanwhile, attend to your own relationship, to your own personal mortality. Meanwhile, Ask the people around you what matters most to them, not at the end of their life, but right now. What matters most to them? Explore that with an open heart and open mind, and I think you'll find ample opportunities to engage more uh, intimately and to feel more connected to the life that you're leading right now. So meanwhile, while Aubrey and Zoltan and all the rest of them are working hard to push the envelope out, um, meanwhile, take care of yourself, take care of your own. And as people uh, succumb to the current reality around mortality, uh, make sure you're there with them and present to them. Meanwhile. I have to support you 100% on this. I, I agree completely. And I, and I think actually it's, 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 it's very important uh, to... to to, to kind of hopefully, if possible, look both beyond and here in, in the present. Um, and, and by the way, on that, I would suggest also another book by a guy called Brendan Bruchart. I don't know if you're familiar with Brendan. He has a book called Life's Golden Ticket, where he describes a, a life-changing experience after a car crash when he was 18. And he says the three questions, and, and that's why the book is called Life's Golden Ticket, because he survived. But he says, I discovered that the three questions that every one of us asks in the end is, did I live, did I love, and did I matter? This is it. This is it. So I, I, I suggest you check up on that book. That's the question I ask every day today. Did I love? Did I live? Did I matter? Yeah. And I, I agree. I, I find myself a lot of value in asking those questions and approaching your daily life in sort of that kind of a, a, a mindset of I'm going to live today to live, to love and to matter in that kind of a fashion. And then you take, you take that kind of vitality 
and you go into the lab to go defeat the tel telomeres. You, you go to, to go to work. the telomeres. Yes. Yeah. You, you go to work in whatever you find your passion for. Um, and for me, it's in caring for people as they exit the world. Um, for others, it's making art. It's doing blogs. It's, you know, that's, that's exactly right. Dr. Michael Fratkin, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it.